morning. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 7 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. From the, the time I was a little boy, uh, beginning at about four years old, uh, I sat under the teaching of a man named Otis Fisher. Otis was about 60 years older than me. And he was a Sunday school teacher at Westside Baptist Church in Corsicana, Texas. And he led a Bible study in his home about twice a week, almost every single week, without fail. He had a middle school education. He dropped out in middle school to help his parents on the farm. But he studied the Bible every day for his entire life until he died. Otis Fisher discipled me for the better part of my childhood, and in many ways, he is responsible for making me the Christian that I am today. So blame him, I guess, is what I'm saying. Uh, I remember one evening at Bible study, he asked me, he had this very deep, kind of, kind of gruff voice, and he had these really thick glasses, and I remember him looking at me, and he, he asked me in that deep voice, Michael, have you ever had your cup bumped? And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I guess no. I guess the answer is no. And so he had a glass of water there, and he said, hold this. And so I held it in my hand, this glass of water out here, and he started slapping my arm. Water was just flying everywhere, all over the place. And I remember this night in particular, was at, was, we, were, we were hosting the Bible study. I remember because my mom was sweating as water was flying everywhere, all over her carpet. And I remember at the very end, he said, uh, what came out of that glass? And I said, water. And he said, why? And I said, that's because that's what you put in it. And he said, exactly. I didn't understand the point of this exercise, but then he said, the same is true of your life. When, you, when adversity hits you, what comes out is what was inside to begin with. Yes. And I was 13 at the time, so I just rolled my eyes and walked off. <laughs> but, uh, but, but this morning, we're going to be looking at the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful. And, and I think this is perhaps one of the more difficult subjects to tackle, is in this area of mercy and forgiveness, because all of us, to one degree or another, have been affected by some adverse situation that's either tempted us to erupt in a fit of rage, yes. 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 or maybe even to fall into despair and self-loathing. Yes. Yes. Every single one of us, all individuals, have had this happen to us in our lives. We've had people that have proven to be so difficult that we would either rather just ignore them or destroy them. One of the two. Anything but showing mercy to them. It's such a common struggle for everyone that I think it makes this beatitude in particular difficult one to think through. So let's look at our text this morning. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, 3 to 12, but we're going to focus on verse 7 this morning. So let's start with Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, as a, as a review, just remember how this began in the book of Matthew. Jesus has just begun here in chapter 5 preaching really his first sermon to the masses. And it's this sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew's chapter 5 to 7. He's begun telling us, he started with the Beatitudes, what was traditionally called the Beatitudes, which is Matthew verses, chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. Beatitude really just means blessed. So it's all the times that Jesus goes through there and says, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. But as we've seen in the past weeks, and as I've said every week up until now, these Beatitudes are more than simply an introduction to a sermon. This is not just an attention-getter that he's giving to us. In fact, what he's giving to us is a character profile. He's outlining what constitutes a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is the people that belong in the kingdom of heaven. This is how you would describe them. And I haven't mentioned this up until now, but I will every week until we get to verse 10. But you'll notice, if you look at verses 3 and verse 10, there is a promise given to each one of those people that's identified there in verses 3 and verse 10. And the promise is the same, the kingdom of heaven. So here you have in verse 3, the promise is the kingdom of heaven. You have verse 10, the promise is the kingdom of heaven. And everyone in between is an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. So he's outlining in this kingdom of heaven sandwich exactly what kind of character makes it into the kingdom of heaven. How would I describe one who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Here he is, right here at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. You can see back in chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus comes in and he's teaching and preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, I'm, I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven with me. Here it is, standing right in front of you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at, is at hand. And right out of the gate, he starts preaching to us and he starts defining its citizenship. These are the people that are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And as I've said, these aren't the worldly wish list of how you would build your kingdom. This is not where you're starting. If you're trying to build an imposing kingdom to take out the people that already occupy the land. But, Jesus says, this is exactly to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. This morning, the beatitude we're looking at is in verse 7. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And as we did last week, we really want to dissect what he's saying here and really ask three questions. First, who are the merciful? Second, to whom should be extended mercy? And third, how are we to actually do this? 
which I think is one of the most important questions that we can really tackle. How, how do we actually do this and apply it to our lives? First, who are the merciful? Now, this is a really important question, and I don't want you to just throw this away just because it seems pretty evident. We should probably all give the Sunday school answer right about now. Who are the merciful? I know who the merciful are, but don't just throw that out. This is a really important question because of how this beatitude is phrased. Read it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, on, on first read of this, we could take it as a very legalistic promise. Here's the way in which God grants you mercy. You simply show mercy to other people. But he not only says you'll be shown mercy by God, but Jesus goes as far as to call them blessed. Blessed are the merciful. I'm sure all of you know people that are the kindest, sweetest, most merciful people that are not Christians. And in fact, I'm sure you know some Christians that are quite the opposite. Christians don't have the market cornered on mercy. I'm sure you know some Christians that have stabbed you in the back or mean to you from time to time were anything but merciful. So here Jesus says, apparently, blessed are those who just show mercy to someone else. They're going to be granted mercy by God. All that's required, in other words, is for you to just give mercy to someone else and God will show you eternal mercy. Is that what Jesus means here? Is Jesus saying here that someone can be saved not by believing and trusting in him, but simply by showing mercy to another person? In other words, is Jesus just wanting his citizens of his kingdom to simply be moral people? To just be good, upstanding young men and women. To demonstrate mercy and that's it. So see, it's important that we identify exactly the people that Jesus is talking about here. And I think we can answer this question. Who are the merciful from at least two places in Matthew's gospel? The first answer that we see is that the merciful are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We get that from the context that this verse occurs in right here. Remember, context is important if you're reading Scripture. You can't just pull verses out of context and just apply them to whatever situation you think they seem to best fit in. Context is important, as we've already seen. Jesus is building this profile. He's sketching out here a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And it's helpful to remember that. Because... For one, the merciful person that we're talking about here is not just merciful. This merciful person is also someone who's poor in spirit. Remember, he understands that his need for a Savior. He understands that his sin has bankrupted him. That he has no claim to God's eternal reward. He has no right to the throne of God at all. He has no right to come before God and approach His throne at all except by standing on the righteousness of Christ. He's poor in spirit. This person is also a mourner over his own sin. We saw that a few weeks ago. He's a mourner of his own sin and the sinful state that the world has fallen into. His spiritual poverty and his his grief over sin has produced in him a meekness. So he walks around not in a boastful attitude, but he's meek. 
He's humble. He's contrite. He's gentle in spirit. He has no animosity towards other people, but has been humbled by his sinful state. And now, as we saw last week, he actually desires, he hungers and thirsts to live a life that's pleasing to God. So it's not as though that this characteristic of mercy just stands here in isolation. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. No, no, no. It's a culmination. It's a growing list of characteristics of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He is all of these things. But this characteristic of mercy is also shown throughout the book. It's demonstrated to us throughout the book of Matthew. And it's shown by none other than than Christ himself, but it's expected to be shown by us, the reader as well, and the follower of Christ. So we get this second answer to the question, who are the merciful? And it's very clear the ones who have been shown mercy are expected to be the merciful. Who are the merciful? It's the ones who have been shown mercy. We see this in Matthew chapter 18. Now you may be familiar with this parable But it's one that Jesus tells to his disciples after Peter asks him, All right, look, Lord, how how many times will I have to forgive my brother? Jesus tells him to forgive, 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 forgive. He seems to put no qualification on forgiveness at all in Matthew chapter 18. And finally, Peter just asks the question that everybody is thinking to begin with, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And so Jesus, instead of just answering the question outright, he lays a parable on him. He tells him this parable of this servant who owes a debt to a king. And the servant comes before uh, the king and he owes a debt of what would be in today's money about $10 billion. You can imagine that kind of debt a servant would owe a king. $10 billion. And miraculously, what happens? The king forgives his debt. All is well. But then the servant turns from the king to one of his fellow servants who owes him in what would be today's money about $15,000, which is no small amount. But by comparison, it is a small amount. Turns to his friend who owes him $15,000 and he says that he won't forgive him. In fact, not only does he not forgive him, he chokes him out. And then when the guy still doesn't have money to pay, even after he's got his his hand on his throat, he gets him thrown into debtor's prison. Then the king finds out what this servant has done, whom he had just forgiven a $10 billion debt that he had turned and done this to his fellow servant. And this is what he says to him in Matthew 18, 32 and 33. He says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? One way of answering the question, who are the merciful, is here in this text. The ones who have been shown mercy. But that's the expectation of this parable, isn't it? I mean, when you read it, don't you think to yourself, How absurd for this guy to be forgiven a $10 billion debt and then turn around and hold somebody to account for a meager $15,000. Isn't it the answer to Peter's question? Yeah, but 
how many times do I have to forgive him? I mean, seven times do I have to forgive him? See, Jesus' answer in this parable is just is really simple. Your mercy is allowed to quit at the point where you are more merciful than God. And as we just read earlier, not only are his mercies made new every day, but his mercies are never ending. So good luck. So the answer is you're never allowed to not extend mercy. So if you have been shown mercy by God Almighty for the sins that you have committed, then it is expected for you to turn and forgive those who have sinned against you. That would be mercy to them. And it would be ludicrous for you to do anything else. As awful as you think that man is who turns and chokes out his fellow brother. It's illustrative of exactly the role we play. So this is the same answer given to us in at least two different ways. Who are the merciful? The merciful are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones who have been shown mercy. So you must understand who these people are that Jesus is talking about. He's not saying that salvation is given to you simply by showing people mercy. There's plenty of lost people that are in that case, in that situation. He's saying that the people that have found salvation, that have truly found salvation will show people mercy. So the reward that he promises, they shall receive mercy, is really the fulfillment of the mercy in eternal life. You're given the gift, the merciful gift of eternal life. The mercy, in other words, that you have received now for your sins, that God has forgiven you of your sins in the here and now, is not over with yet. That's what that means. It's not over with yet. This is but a foretaste of the mercy to come. See, I think sometimes we go over long life and we just sort of forget. We you know, confess our sins before the Lord and we move on from day to day and we forget the amount of sins that we have racked up in our life, so to speak. We forget just how vile and how evil we really are. How wicked our hearts are to the core. But on that day, on judgment day, when the books are opened, how sweet will his mercy appear then? How good will it look then? When you realize the full magnitude of your sin. When you see God for who he really is, the judge sitting on the throne, when you see Christ, nail scars in his hand, who died for you, how sweet will his mercy seem then? But the bigger and more difficult question to wrestle with is to whom should mercy be extended? See, his mercy actually has to be applied to people. So it should be said here that, that mercy here is not simply forgiveness. If Jesus wanted to say, blessed are those who forgive, for they will be forgiven, he, he would have said that. But he didn't say that. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Now, forgiveness certainly is a merciful act, but it falls under the umbrella of mercy. Mercy is the umbrella that forgiveness walks under. But there's lots of other ways in which mercy is applied as well. And as I've mentioned before, these beatitudes are demonstrated throughout the book of Matthew. So this, the attitude that Jesus is talking about here is demonstrated throughout various points of this book. So when we ask, to whom should mercy be extended, Jesus is actually going to tell us. He's actually going to show us in the book of Matthew who mercy should be extended to. And first, we see that mercy should be extended to those that have nothing. Mercy should be extended to those that have nothing. We see that in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. You don't have to turn there. You can just write that down. Those that have nothing, Matthew 9, 27. So there are numerous times throughout the gospel of Matthew that there are these cries from people in the street as Jesus walks by. And the cry is nearly always the same. It's, have mercy on us, O son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. And so here in Matthew 9, 27, there's an example of two blind men. They cry out, have mercy on us, Jesus, O son of David, as he walks by. And they continue to follow him. <coughs> They're persistent all the way till Je they follow Jesus into a house. And they keep saying, have mercy on us, son of David. And he turns around. And he heals them. He gives them their sight. This is his mercy to them. But it says something, I think, about the mercy that we extend to others. See, biblical mercy includes relieving the suffering that someone else is going through. Biblical mercy is relieving them of suffering. Now, in the blind men's case, they're, they're blind but they're probably also poor. Being blind, they can't work, they have to beg. The mercy that we give to other people, it might be medical, it might be financial, it might be a whole host of other ways that we can help to relieve the suffering of someone else. But the point is, mercy isn't merely restricted to forgiveness. It's also relief. But we live in an interesting time, I think. Because we live in a country that's the wealthiest country that's ever existed, that's ever been known. And to the point where in global poverty standards, even our poor are considered well off. Mm -hmm. By global poverty standards. So there are some even that make a living off being poor. That will, will beg, borrow, and even steal to some extent. And that is their full-time job. They'll scam people to do whatever is possible not to hold a stable job or to work for a living. There are people in our society that do that. And I think the same was true actually of Jesus' day as well. But because of the prevalence of this, sometimes our attitude as Christians can go from mercy to being jaded. To being calloused to the needs of the poor. Where we end up thinking, well, if you're asking me for money, then you're probably either just going to use it on drugs or alcohol, or you're just scamming me. This shouldn't be the default position for the hearts of the people in the church. That shouldn't be where we are by default. Our default position should be one of mercy and wisdom. The two coming together. They should be hold, held together at the same time. 
The reason for these two is that it takes wisdom to discover what the merciful action should be. It takes wisdom to figure out what I should do in this situation. See, mercy isn't necessarily just handing someone a $20 bill. But wisdom isn't necessarily keeping it in your pocket either. It takes both coming together to figure out what needs to happen in this situation. Mercy without wisdom isn't truly mercy. In some cases, it can be enabling. But wisdom devoid of mercy isn't truly wisdom. In many cases, it can be greed. I simply don't want to go through the effort of doing what it's going to take to really help this person. And we put ourselves in a situation where we don't really want to put forth the effort to see what it's going to take to get this person into a place where they can actually live and extend mercy to them. So instead, we need to have a biblical position of wisdom and mercy. Each case that comes to us needs to be taken on its own merits. We're not thinking about what the previous person tried to do. I heard this story before. Previous person, they tried to scam me. We need to evaluate each need. And if you don't think that happens, you work in a church for about six months. You will see... You will hear the same story every week, if you wanted to, every single week. But each person needs to be taken on their own merits, evaluating the, the real needs that are there, investigating the details, determining whether or not it's possible to completely help this person in this particular situation. Teach a man to fish, as it were. And if it's determined that they're really just trying to scam you, then certainly mercy is not going to be helping them. But mercy is also not going to be telling them go away and walking away, turning your back on them. The merciful play here is to actually let them know what their sin is. Here's the reason I see this as actually a detriment to where you are at. It's because what you are doing is sinful. And what you really need is forgiveness from the Lord for what you're doing. Not just simply moving on as if they're just a despicable human being, but trying to help them understand where they're at in a sinful position. I think it's, it's really easy to just go, no, I'm not going to help you and walk away. It's much more difficult to get to the spiritual conversation of sin that lies underneath the scam. Mm-hmm. But in the event that as far as you can tell... They really are in need, then we need to bend over backwards to try to help them. And if in the end we're taken advantage of, and maybe it was just a really good scam, we turn that over to the Lord. That's His money, it's not ours. point is that we should be striving toward mercy ever and always. But then second, we should extend mercy to those who are the farthest from Jesus. 
We should extend mercy to those that are the farthest from Jesus. Matthew 9, 13 tells us this. We see, it, we see this example of mercy just a couple of paragraphs before what we just read. So his, Jesus' disciples are gathered around him, and Jesus is sitting at a table, and he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. And there is a question from the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees that are around him, and they ask the disciples, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors. This is a problem for them. And Jesus hears them, he knows what they're talking about, and he turns to them in Matthew 9, 12 and 13, and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Remember, mercy is relieving someone of suffering. And in the case of Jesus with the sinners and tax collectors, he is relieving them from the suffering of sin. Luke makes it very clear when Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, Luke says, but sinners to repentance. See, a Christian is merciful when he or she presents the gospel. And the reason why is because he knows that there is judgment to come. And deep down, he doesn't want to see this human being suffer the wrath of God. He doesn't want to see them drink the cup of the fury of God's wrath. Plain and simple. But is our mindset such that we see our brief time here on earth? as a time to extend mercy to others through the sharing of the gospel, through calling sinners to repentance? Is that how we view our time? Is to be spent calling people to faith in Jesus, calling sinners, sinners to, re to repentance? Jesus identifies that as a merciful act. He is extending mercy to them. Well, if that's mercy then what is tolerating someone's sin and moving on as if it doesn't exist? What is keeping silent and allowing them to continue down the path without warning? What is that? Well, it's certainly not mercy. It might be hatred. But it's certainly not mercy. Now, I'm certainly not saying that every single person you come across on the sidewalk needs to be asked, where are you in your relationship with Jesus? You'd never get anything done if that was possible. And in fact, we don't need more full-time street evangelists. We need a lot more people going to work, evaluating the spiritual needs of their coworkers, their fellow students, their neighbors, and identifying the ones that are in desperate need of Christ. And working in our relationships to share the gospel with them. We need a lot more of that. We can't get enough of that. Third. The third answer we get is in Matthew chapter 6. Verses 12 through 15. We know that as the Lord's prayer. Jesus prays these words in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And then in verse 14, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also, will, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those who have sinned against us. That's to whom mercy needs to be extended. Those who have sinned against us. Those whose cup is filled to the brim with the mercy of God. Walk around and to the ones that have sinned against them, extend mercy to them. We have had the mercy of God fill up our cup. And so now the objective is to give that to other people. But I think this is why this beatitude is such a serious gut check. Because it's clear that the character of of the citizen of God's kingdom is to extend mercy to people that sin against them. But to be frank, sometimes I'd rather have revenge. Sometimes I'd rather see the look on their face when I come out on top. that tells me everything that I need to know about the cup I'm holding and what's in it. Friends, think about this for just a moment. There has been one perfect person to walk this earth and you're not him. Neither am I. And that perfect person gave his life that you might be saved. And Ephesians tells us that He gave you both the grace and the faith to be saved. And so it's right to say that it's by His grace that you have received salvation. So in other words, He has filled your cup with His mercy. If you are in Christ, you will not have to drink the cup of the fury of His wrath. Plain and simple, you won't have to do that. He says, you will receive mercy. Meaning your cup is filled to the brim with his mercy. But now look in the mirror. When when it comes to your cup being bumped, what comes out? We walk around in this body of flesh. Even though we've been given a cup of his mercy we also walk around with another cup. A cup filled with bitterness and hatred. So certainly it could be said, we need to extend mercy to all people. But as we think about just a few specific relationships, and applying it to those in particular, it punches us in the gut, doesn't it? As we think about how that mercy spills out of our cup and onto the lives of these people. So Christian, you're carrying about your morning cup filled to the brim. And on your way, you're bumped by the poor person, the rejected, the despised. He has his hand out, palm to the sky. What spills out of your cup? Is it a true and real offering to help? Extending mercy to this person. 
Or is it a jaded response because you've heard this story a thousand times? You're on your way somewhere and you get bumped by your lost friend, classmate, colleague. What spills out? Is it a sincere and genuine call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ because you truly care for this person in their eternal state? Or is it shying away from the conversation because, frankly, the time isn't right? Look, if I'm honest, for me, often it's, oh man, I really want to, but they look busy. Or, I really have to be somewhere else. Or maybe just in your mind, there comes in the picture or the name of that person who has sinned against you. What spills out of your cup? Is it mercy and forgiveness or is it bitterness and loathing? Now, it's usually at this point where we ask the question, do I really have to forgive them if they've never asked? Uh, Who hasn't asked that question? I think all of us have asked that question at one point or another. Even if we just ask it in our own head, we think, do I really have to forgive this person if they've never asked me for forgiveness? See, mercy puts your heart in a disposition to forgive before you've ever been asked. If we're truly merciful people, our heart is ready to extend forgiveness as soon as we have that conversation. It's not something that we have to think about. We are at our core merciful people. So then now we have to ask the last question. How do we actually do this? I don't know about you, but for me, this is a really difficult beatitude. I know so many times, even in the past week, that this, for some reason, didn't apply to me, right? That I escaped this beatitude. So I thought. So the first thing is we have to understand our own spiritual poverty. We have to think about and reflect on our own spiritual poverty. What state are you truly in before the Lord? Part of the reason why we did this Bible reading and prayer guide that we put out, and part of the reason that we went by this Acts model in the prayer guide, is so that not only would we be reading Scripture every morning, But as we read the scripture, we would come down to the Acts prayer model and we'd be forced to think back on the scripture we just read. And we'd have to ask ourselves, was there a character in that story that committed a sin that you're guilty of too? It causes us in our Bible reading to actually think about the sins that we commit. See, it's so tempting when we read the Old Testament to go, man, the Jews, they just were so, they were buffoons. Look at how often they sinned against the Lord. And they continued to do it. They kept falling in this trap over and over and over again. Well, I'm too smart for that. If I was in the wilderness, I would never do that. It's just not true. Every sin they're guilty of, I'm guilty of the same. So it forces us to come to our knees before the Lord and actually confess the same sins that are being revealed in our heart as we're reading the Scriptures. So it's got to be a point at which we, we bring our hearts and our minds to reflect on this at the beginning of every day. That's the reason it's so important to get in the Word right out of bed. 
to get into prayer right out of bed. It has to put your heart right before you ever even enter your day. And there's a reason why what we just read earlier, His mercies are made new every day, why that's important. Because there's something about sleeping for eight hours that I just forget what all happened yesterday. (laughs) Things have to be renewed or I just don't think they exist anymore. So it's important that we put ourselves at the feet of Jesus in the very beginning of our day. In reading, in prayer, setting our hearts right before Him so that when we walk out of our house or when we interact with the people that are in our house, we respond with an attitude of mercy. Yes. Yes. But second, we have to remember that God is just. Now this comes in handy to remind yourself every single day, especially as you think about the people that have sinned against you. Especially in those scenarios where you may never get justice out of this scenario, out of the situation. There may be people that have sinned against you that just either they don't know it or it's been too long, they've long forgotten, everything's been put under, swept under the rug, but it hasn't in your own heart. And you think, there's just never going to be a day where they finally get what's coming to them. Where I finally receive justice in this matter. Remembering that God is just is not the same thing as saying, well, I'll just let them off the hook. Instead, it's saying, I trust that God is going to handle this situation adequately. I trust that He's going to adjudicate this matter perfectly. And in the end, it's choosing to rely on His method of justice. That doesn't mean we don't call people out for their sin. That's not loving either. We definitely need to do that. But it does mean in those situations where it's gone, when we still harbor bitterness, we need to remember that God is just, that no sin slips by. And as recipients of His mercy, we're to be people of mercy. Those citizens who extend the mercy already shown to them in this life, the mercy that He's given to us, will receive an exorbitant amount of mercy in the life to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your mercies are made new every day. So often we forget, I forget, just how merciful you've been to me. And yet I'm reminded time and time again as I encounter your word that you're not only merciful, but you're just. And you could have taken out your wrath toward my sin on me and you chose not to. But you are just in that you took it out on your own son. Someone suffered for my sin. What an incredible act of mercy and grace. Father, as we think about that, I pray that you would bring our hearts to humble repentance. We would understand how poor in spirit we truly are. 
that we would turn to you in repentance and faith and be assured of the forgiveness that you give. Lord, I pray that it would cause us in our humility to turn towards our brothers and sisters and extend mercy to them. Lord, I don't know what's going on in the minds of people in this congregation, but I pray you would put our hearts predisposed to forgiveness by dwelling on the mercy that you've given to us. That you would give to all of us a supernatural gift of giving to others forgiveness. Pray that we would be a church who proclaims the gospel boldly, but also lives it out. And that the poor in our community would not be simply despised or forgotten, but would be loved and cared for and helped. Pray that we would be a merciful congregation truly loves the people that are in our midst, both inside and outside of these walls, in this church and in this town. In Jesus' name, amen.